So in many ways, I think that social media, like Facebook and Twitter, is kind of like the new bumper stickers. And here's why. You see cars driving around with these pithy little statements like, uh, oh, world peas instead of world peace. He, 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 very creative. Uh, and, and recently, I've seen a lot of like, just pithy statements that people put on Facebook and Twitter Kind of lame. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really know all the motives of why people seem to think it's cool to quote dead people or, or other things like that, but um, maybe they just want to wow their friends with bits of uncontextualized wisdom. Uh, coexist, or uh, I've seen this one a lot lately. What's the best religion, Dalai Lama was once asked, and Dalai Lama answered, whatever makes you more compassionate, more detached, more loving, more humanitarian, more responsible, more ethical. Okay, that's nice. How about whatever religion is true? I would say that's pretty important too. Uh, Jesus is the most quoted. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. Great statements just to throw out there. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with great quotes, right? Or bumper sticker statements. But simply posting a quote like that, uncontextualized, is kind of like cheap talk. Eloquent platitudes and even scripture quotations gain their power when they are lived out in community. So coexist, fine, that's a great one. How are we doing at that in the context of cross-cultural friendships and civil ecumenical dialogue? How are we doing at that? That would be something to post about. Or love your enemies, that's a great idea. How's that going with the co-worker who slandered you last week? Or with the estranged family member who won't even talk to you? See, we've been working through Ephesians since January, and the first four chapters, we've been working with some very lofty ideas. I've said numerous times, I think this letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote is about how the church looks to God, about how the church is supposed to look. It's a picture of the church in all her glory. A view, a glimpse of how the church looks from God's perspective. Well, today we're going to look at how many of those lofty statements that Paul has been making about God, about Jesus, about the Spirit, about the church actually play out in community. But before we get to our text this evening, let's recap the statement that Paul makes just before our text because it's absolutely vital. Ephesians 5.18 says something amazing. In 5.18, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as Pastor Jeff Flint spoke last week on that passage, he reminded us that be filled is in the passive. It's good news. It's not go fill yourself up with the Spirit as if you and I could do that. It's be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a work of God that fills us. Every person who has placed their faith in Jesus, has been baptized, has the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit is a gift to followers of Jesus. Now, we can subdue the Spirit. Like, I've got the Spirit, but I can like, be quiet, Holy Spirit. I don't want to listen to you. I want to do my own thing, right? The Spirit is not like possessing us like, I can do no wrong because the Spirit's in me, right? It's not like demonic possession or something like that. The Spirit's not a dictator who takes over your body. So you and I, we can choose to sin. We can choose to numb ourselves to the Spirit. Or we can place ourselves in a position 
to live life in the Spirit, to let the Spirit flow in and through us. We can trust in the ways of the Spirit, like being submitted to the Word of God, by participating in the sacraments through prayer and faith and courage. Or we can trust in the ways of the world that kind of subdue the Spirit in us, trusting like earthly substances for our strength or grasping at power and privilege at the expense of others. So Paul encourages us to be filled with the Spirit that, that leads to a way of life that he describes using five, partis- five participles, ING statements, stuff that is ongoing, stuff that we, uh, that we do. When we're filled with the Spirit, he says, we do these five things. Singing, making music, giving thanks... Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And for the fifth and final, you might expect some amazing, worshipful, mind-blowing participle. Like levitate or something like that. Instead, the fifth and final participle, the capstone of how we are to live when filled with the Holy Spirit is... Drumroll. Being subject to one another. Being subject... Submitting to one another in fear of Christ. Dang, that would never work in the world. (laughs) Without the rescue of Jesus, without the Holy Spirit in us, it is impossible for me to want to submit to you. It's still pretty darn hard even with the Spirit. Right? Now, our world is a, a, a kind of a thing about submitting. It's equality, like the world works for equality. The problem with equality is you still are trying to grasp at your own rights. It's my right to have equality. And so just mere equality is not the same as mutual submission to one another in the power of the Spirit. But for the church, for those who are about following Jesus in the Spirit... Now, so this is interesting. So I know that like in a church like this, there's always a mixed crowd, right? You've got people who, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus, been baptized following Him. You've got people that like... Yeah, I said that a long time ago, but I kind of haven't been to church in a while, so just checking this out. And then you've got people who are genuinely kind of checking out church and Jesus for the first time. So for all of you, just relax. If you're not like following Jesus yet, none of this, you don't have to like have these high standards, so just chill. But for those of you who call yourself a disciple of Jesus, this is pretty intense stuff, right? So listen to this, we're supposed to submit to one another in fear of the Lord. It's not the kind of fear... That, oh man, if I don't do this, I might get a lightning bolt on my head, right? It's not that kind of fear. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the awe that comes from encountering Him. Because when we encounter Jesus, we come face to face with the person who is at one and the same time completely other than us, completely holy, completely perfect, powerful, and beautiful on the one hand, and at the same time, approachable, loving, Died to rescue us. It's the kind of encounter that brings us to our knees and makes us wonder, should I be shaking in absolute fear or should I be shaking with absolute joy? To which the answer to both is yes. The fear of the Lord is amazing. Goose pimply fear of the Lord. We submit. See, it sounds like another lame bumper sticker or social media post. Like, submit to one another. Yay, how are we going to do that? Uh, It's incredibly lofty ideal. But the instructions that Paul is about to give us over the next three weeks are where the rubber meets the road. In the very pedestrian and ordinary places of life, 
in your house, with your children, and in your work situations. It doesn't get much more basic than that. So would you stand with me, please, as I read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And be subject to one another in fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she fears or respects her husband. Father, we confess along with the Apostle Paul who said in that very statement, this mystery is great. This is uh, so foreign to us, Lord, offensive in so many ways. And my prayer is that you would help us to receive your word, to rightly divide your word, to submit to your word, as you wish it to impact our lives and our hearts. Lord, help us to set aside all the baggage we bring into a text like this and to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've said this several times as we've been working through the letter of Ephesians, but doing this following Jesus thing, it's, it's impossible to do by yourself outside of community. To put it another way, I guess, we really won't be shaped into the image of Jesus if we're not tested in real world situations. It's easy to say, I submit to other believers if you're a hermit who never sees any other believers, right? You could tweak that, it would be okay. But... It's a quite another thing in the context of real marriages, of real relationships, of real churches, right, where we don't see everything eye to eye. That's where we are shaped and formed when we submit to each other in real life. So Paul gives us some examples of how this mutual submission should play out in ordinary, everyday life, and he mentions three spheres. Okay. Now today I read the one about marriage, husbands and wives, but this is actually one large section we're going to get to in the next few weeks. He mentions three spheres. One, husbands and wives. The second sphere is parents and children. And the third sphere is slaves and masters. Okay. First a qualifier. Right. 
I was just talking about how this works out practically in your everyday life. Does everyone, anyone here have an everyday life where you have a slave? Uh, uh, I look out in this congregation and not everyone's a parent. I look out in this congregation and not everyone is married. I look out in this congregation and you better not have a slave. Right? So tell me again, Paul, how this is the practical outworking of relationships. Well, I was thinking about, have you ever wondered why Paul chose these three relationships? Like he could have chosen anything to talk about uh, mutual submission and he chooses these three relationships. And I realized that Paul probably didn't choose them. They were chosen for him. Here's what I mean. In first century Jewish and Mediterranean world, these were the three main categories of discussion in the, in the realm of ethics, philosophy, and politics. In all three of those realms, the three main topics were marriages, raising your kids, and master-slave relationships. In Paul's day, if you picked up, an, or in our day, I've got several ethics books on my bookshelf. And if I could, I could pick up any of them that are written in the last 200 years, and they're almost all the same topics. There's, well, bioethics is fairly new in the last 100 years. But there's bioethics, there's ethics of economics, right? There's ethics of, um, of creation care. Uh, how do we... How do we Ecological ethics, right? And human rights ethics. Those are some of the major categories in our ethics books. Well, if you were to pull the books off of the ethics library in Paul's day, you would find sections on marriage, every one of them, on marriage, on raising kids, and on master-slave relationships. See, unlike our culture where you have a political race and people say, oh, your religion or your family life shouldn't be important, although the candidates always drag each other through the mud on those issues. But really, it's not supposed to play an important part of our political scene. In Paul's day, everything banked on the family unit. Their whole economy was based on the slave-master relationship, uh, how you rear your kids. There was no higher establishment than the family unit in the first century Greco-Roman world. In those days, you were known... By your family name. Right? You're known by your father's name. So there's a father-son right there, Patrick and Tim. Uh, Patrick and Adelaide, they have a microfinance business in Mexico. They own Elizabeth Station. Patrick has uh, a degree from college. He's musical. He has all these great things going for him. In Paul's day, he's Patrick, son of Tim McAvoy. Who cares what Patrick's done? And is, I mean, that's, you are known. It's called dietism. You're known by your family clan, and that's it, by your father's name. Social etiquette, culture itself, were taught and perpetuated and protected by very rigid marriage and family structures. It wasn't a matter of if you would get married, but when. And most women were married off in their teenage years, guys mid-20s, early 30s. Just the way it was. Family units were everything. Aristotle taught that the family was the fabric that held life together. It kind of sounds like an ancient focus on the family agenda or something until you hear what it was actually like. In the ancient world, just a little caveat here, whenever I'm talking about other cultures that create the backdrop of the scriptures we're talking about, I'm trying to say how it was 
so we can understand the text. So when I'm describing these cultures, this is not what should be. This is not some golden era that we should go back to. This is just actually a pretty disgusting way that it was. Okay, so just try and hear it as, this is how it was in the first century, not, is he saying we should do this? Um, so, in the ancient world, men ruled every aspect of society. The head male of the household was called the pater, which means father in Greek, familius. Can you say pater familius? Yeah, pater familius, the head honcho. What the pater familius said, went. He held all the power, and that power was not questioned. In fact, that power was sanctioned by tradition and by civil law. Tradition and civil law. Children had basically no rights. If the potterfamilius wanted a boy and the wife bore a girl, the potterfamilius could just say, no, execute. And it wasn't even nice. They would take him out to the wilderness and expose, they just leave, leave the child there. Women had few or no rights. Wives could not be seen in public without a family male escort. Klein Snodgrass writes of the situation. I quote, and this is in italics even in his book, If they were allowed to live at birth, women were minimally educated, could not be witnesses in a court of law, could not adopt children or make a contract, could not own property or inherit property. They were viewed as both from Aristotle and Josephus in all respects inferior to a man. They were seen as less intelligent, less moral, and the source of sin and continual temptation. One writer said, women are the worst plague Zeus ever made. And it's not just Greco-Roman stuff. Here's a second century rabbi. Do not talk much with a woman, even your own wife. On marriage relationships, Demosthenes said, we have prostitutes for our pleasure, concubines for daily habitation, and wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. In Greece, a woman had no part in her husband's affairs, no input into his life. He made all the decisions. And Rome was worse. James Montgomery Boyce calls it the sewer of the ancient world. Uh, that is the world, by the way, that Paul is living in and ministering in and writing to. That is the world of Ephesians, Ephesus, trading city, under Roman Empire rule. That's the culture. So how did this happen? Is this just the way the world is? After all, we still have an extremely high divorce rate in our own country. Spousal abuse at the hands of men is far too high. In Christian homes, some statistics say 18% of Christian marriages have physical abuse on the hands of the husband. How did we get here? And I know that we have a more equal society by far than Rome. We still have a glass ceiling. Why do men still with the same education make more money than a woman in the same spot? Right? So we're not out of the woods yet with this. How did this happen? Well, let's go back in time to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle of the earth and over every creeping thing. God created people in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you catch that? Men and women created in God's image. Not men created in God's image and then women can kind of 
hang out. Men and women created in God's image. That's from the beginning. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the human, literally the earth man, Adam, Adam. It's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Well, the word for helper here in the Hebrew is ezer. Say ezer with me. Yeah, ezer. Some English versions translate ezer as helper. But in our culture, helper doesn't cut it for me. Helper sounds like... The assistant to the boss. It's kind of a weak word. But Ezer in Hebrew actually is more of a partner or a colleague. Ezer is a strong word. In fact, God is actually referred to as an Ezer in some of the Psalms when he comes to rescue Israel in military might. So Ezers can kick some butt. They're not just second best, not just the assistants, right? Well, when the man, God creates all these animals in the sense that he names all these animals... He has authority over all these animals. Well, that doesn't cut it. He, he's kind of the boss over all these animals. None of them are suitable easers for him. So then God says, okay, I'm going to get medieval. And I'm going to take a rib out of you. And I'm going to make an easer for you that is strong and witty and powerful. Not just someone to boss around. Not just someone you have authority over. But a partner in ministry. A partner. Both strong Both called to steward the land and relate to God directly. Both made in God's image. So what on earth happened? If that's how we were created, how did we get here? Well, when our ancestors rebelled against God, they brought about a curse on the land and they brought about a curse on themselves that we perpetuate today. And part of that curse is strife between men and women, husband and wives. Can I get an amen? Is there any strife out there? (laughs) It's sometimes hard to just see eye to eye on every issue. I don't know what it is. Uh, That's how we got screwed up. That's how we get screwed up in balances of power, like the Greco-Roman world. And that's how we get screwed up marriages like in the United States of America. But Paul, see, Paul is now teaching us something different. He has been teaching us for four, over four chapters now, that in Christ... We are new creations. In Christ, we're new creations. Check out Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 on your spare time. We are new creations. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, it's amazing. So, he is saying that the curse is broken for those of you who are in Christ. For those who are filled with that life of the Spirit. In Galatians 3, Paul says there's no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female. We all have the same access to God. We are all on equal ground. There's a great flattening out of hierarchy when the gospel breaks into our world. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5 is reimagining... The marriage relationship. He's reimagining in the beginning of Ephesians 6 the parent-child relationship. He's reimagining slave-master relationships. Now think for a moment. Here's this guy coming in with this message about how uh, you know, women and men are recreated. Oh yeah, so they're equal. There's this easier thing. Flattening out of hierarchy. Think, think for a moment. In a Roman society where they put down revolts that have... Differing religious points. If you attack the family system in Rome, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get squished. You're going to absolutely get squished by the empire. How do you think they would take to this new movement of Jesus followers? 
where men and women worship in the same house, where men and women, husbands and wives, share the Lord's Supper, where, men, uh, where women are given positions of authority and even teach. I'm thinking of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, for example, a husband and wife team who both teach the famous preacher Apollos the ways of Jesus. That would not happen in a traditional Roman household. The woman would be in the back room. She wouldn't be allowed to see this popular stranger who's come to town on the preaching circuit. But here Priscilla and Aquila teach this man the ways of Jesus. It would be culturally insensitive and basically suicidal for the movement to go out in the open and abolish the Roman family system. So Paul, I think, chooses to subvert the system. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul tells women to submit to their husbands, not because that's how God has always intended it, but so that they wouldn't malign the gospel. They didn't want to create a stumbling block to the Gentiles hearing the word of God because... Here's this radically liberal group with these marriages where the, you know, it's all screwing up our marriage system. We're not going to listen to their gospel. So Paul's saying, use your freedom to submit to one another, kind of in that traditional role, for the sake of the gospel. It's the same thing as if you and I go to a cross-cultural mission, and I'm, you know, I'm free to wear shorts on a hot day. I hate sweating. I'm from the Northwest. Amen. Uh, but why is it when I go to uh, a humid place in Central America or something like that, I've got to wear pants and a long sleeve shirt to be respectful? That's a lame example. But I'm using my freedom. I could just come in shorts, but no one would listen to me. Be like, you're offensive. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. You can't even respect my culture. So I think Paul is subverting this uh, hierarchical marriage here. Paul even uses the three categories used by the pagan ethicists of his day, marriage, family, and slave-master relationships. He tweaks them like he's never done before. There are tons of writings out there about marriage relationships, parent-family, and slave-master in the first century. But none of them look anything like what Paul has written here in the, in the New Testament. Based on the assumption that the married couple are Christians and filled with the Spirit and understanding that they are, sub, are to submit to one another anyway, Paul calls on wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. It sounds shocking on our culture, and in this passage, it has certainly been abused over the years. I've met people who have been abused by passages like this. I've met people who said, my husband was abusing me. My pastor told me to stay and submit. No. This is not to set up a system where men have all the power. It's not to reverse it either where women have all the power. Paul will have none of that. If you look at verse 22 in the Greek, the word be subject is not even there. It literally reads, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now that doesn't make any sense, does it? In the Greek language, what you have to do is pull the verb from the verse before. And what is the verse before? Talking to the whole church, be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Not women to men, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Just be subject to one another. Paul pulls that verb into verse 22 now and says, Wives, be subject, because we're all supposed to be subject to one another anyway, to your husbands in the fear of the Lord. 
Please remember, this has nothing to do with relationships between men and women. This is married couples. This has nothing to do with marriage roles. For example, this has nothing to do with men take out the trash and women watch the kids. Or men mow the lawn and women do the dishes. Actually, in my house, I mow the lawn and do the dishes. So what? (laughs) I do some manly stuff too, though. Yeah. It has nothing to do with marriage roles. In fact, that's very cultural. And the gospel fits every culture. It doesn't change your culture. So there are cultural things, you know, in different parts of the world. This isn't saying uh, anything about marriage roles. This is, not, this is also not marriage counseling. Well, well what, if, what if my husband doesn't love me? Then do I have to submit? Or what if my wife doesn't submit? Do I have to love her? It has nothing to say about special circumstances or marriage counseling. That's not what this is trying to do. So it doesn't seem subversive yet to you? Okay, let me, let's check this out. You see, in those ancient ethics teachings I was talking about, it was expected, commanded, wives obey your husbands. Wives obey your husbands. Here in the context of mutual submission, women are to be subject, are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And later, it calls on women to fear or respect their husbands. That's very different than mere obedience. You can obey someone and not have a shred of respect for them. Anyone who's ever been in the military has had one of those kind of bosses. You obey? How does that woman stay with you? (laughs) Um, You've probably all had maybe work, unless you've worked for McAvoy or something, you've never thought those thoughts. But you've, you've, you've had to obey someone that you didn't necessarily respect, right? And that's, that's, see, in the ancient world, it was all about you just obey. You don't ask questions. In what Paul's doing is subverting that a little bit and saying, no, 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 no. It's not about the obedience part. It's about submitting to one another. And when you submit to your husband, it's as if you're submitting to Jesus. Character formation. Now, this is huge because in the ancient world, wives were expected... To take the gods of their husband. No questions asked. So you're thinking, well, didn't they worship a bunch of different gods? Yes, they did. But depending on where you were from, you had your patron god. So in Ephesus, we've learned about Artemis being the the goddess of Ephesus. And so let's say, you know, the wife's from Ephesus and and Artemis is the god there. And then, you know, you're from Rome and maybe, um, you know, Zeus is is your main one. And you marry this husband from Rome and... All that devotion to Artemis is out the window. Doesn't, you can never say her name. Like, Zeus is the one now. And you just throw all that history out the door. Well, here Paul says uh, something very interesting. In fact, um, just backing up a little bit, it's interesting that historians have often thought that Christianity moved about the lower classes in the first few centuries. And, and certainly that's true. But some new research, um, particularly the, by, by Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist and historian out of UW, he makes a, a compelling case that Christianity probably spread largely around, uh, among aristocratic women. Because here you are in a society where women have no power, sub- and especially if you were the legitimate wife, like some of the prostitutes and stuff, they could go outside because they were just kind of like, Prostitutes, Like they didn't have any honor to, to keep. But if you were like a legitimate wife, 
to protect the honor of your family, you stayed inside. You didn't have many relationships with other people except family. And what he says is that when the church came, when the gospel came, now women had the opportunity to learn, to do some teaching, to, to, be, to have some positions of, of power and authority and worth. It was very appealing to them. And in the church, um, Paul counsels women who are married to unbelievers. So some of these aristocratic women would become believers, and then maybe their husbands wouldn't convert. And so Paul says, I want you to be more loyal to Christ than to your husband. So if your unbelieving husband wants to leave you, go ahead. Let him go. Stay with him if he's willing to stay because your goodness might convert him, might convince him of the power of the gospel. But if he wants to leave, that's fine. And so for the first time, Christianity is kind of subverting this law that you have to just take your husband's gods. Pretty cool. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a wife's body is not her own, but it's her husband's. Stand by now. And then he says, husbands, your bodies are not your own. They belong to your wife. Ten different examples in that passage about stuff that wives have to do for husbands. Paul then counters and says, husbands, you have to do that for wives too. There's this whole weird movement going on in Corinth about people that thought, we're so spiritual, our bodies are a waste of time. So marriage, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to sleep together anymore. And Paul was basically saying, you need to have sex with each other. <laughs> he was saying, uh, yeah, you're not, you're not that spiritual. Uh, you, 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 yeah, you need, you need to do this earthly marriage thing. It's actually created by God. It's a good thing. So Paul, is he contradicting himself here in, in Ephesians? Because in Corinthians, he's saying some pretty amazing things. In Galatians, he's saying there's no more men or women. It's like we're on equal ground. I think he's trying to work the gospel into the Greco-Roman system of marriage. In ancient eth- ethical thinking, men were expected to provide for their wives. But there was no command in those teachings for men to love their wives. In fact, in those ancient writings about marriage, family, and slaves, the only people mentioned in them, the only people with commands, were the wives, what they had to do, what the children had to do, and what the slaves had to do. The slave masters, the parents, and the husbands were not mentioned. It's all set up for the one with the power and the privilege to be... Scott free. And here Paul, this is so different, he's now putting commands on the, on the husbands, on the parents, and on the masters of the slaves. We'll get to those later too in the next couple of weeks. But in Christ, those with power have much responsibility. So Paul calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And well, frankly, how much did Christ love the church? He died the church this whole thing in our culture man we marry for love right what does that mean we marry for love we, we assume love as part of the relationship in fact maybe we're too far off the spectrum where if I don't feel the love anymore I'm going to get a divorce that's, that's BS on the other side of the spectrum but when Paul said like love wasn't even a requirement of these marriage codes it was just men you provide women you obey Women, you stay in the house and raise the kids. And men, you can have your concubines and prostitutes on the side. Accepted. The way it was. So what Paul is saying here for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church, absolutely revolutionary. 
You may have not heard this before. I think Paul's a feminist in a way. <laughs> oh, I know that's a tough one to swallow from our perspective. So can you imagine how absolutely shocking that would be? From the time they're boys, men inherited power and authority simply because they were born male. As long as they provided shelter and food and offspring, men could form their whole lives on advancing their careers and pleasing themselves. And now, Paul is calling them to sacrificially love their wives. It's not going to go over real well unless you've been transformed by the Spirit. As I was studying the Greek text, I came across an exciting, nerdy, geeky discovery. In verse 28, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Something interesting. In Greek, it literally says, Husbands also owe, owe loves, owe, owe love to their wives. You see, I think the church has too often looked at verse 22 and said that the husband is the head of the wife and read into that that the husband is the ruler. But Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, rule your wives really well. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? What kind of head of the church has Christ been to us? Sacrificial headship. Jesus is the head of the church who died for her, who talked with women in public when it would have got him in trouble, who touched and healed lepers, who washed the disciples' feet. Leslie Newbegin writes, Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe the master. Your neighbor is the authorized agent to receive what you owe the master in love. So you say, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me, for the Holy Spirit. I love you. Where are you so I can give you a hug? How do I love you? You know what he says? The people around you, I'm authorizing them as agents to receive the love that you want to give me. Husbands, your wife is the authorized agent to receive what you owe the master. Love her. Give yourself to her. Don't strive for the lowest common denominator. Can I get an amen? That's what we do. Listen. Cherish. Submit. Encourage. Bless. Pray. Serve. Men, take initiative. Show affection. She is the appointed agent authorized to receive what you owe the master. Wives, your husband, your husband is the appointed agent authorized to receive what you owe the master. What does mutual submission look like in your marriage? How can you encourage him? Is the home, is it a safe place for your husband to be somewhat vulnerable or is he going to be criticized at every turn? We husbands are emotionally challenged. Help us. Be explicit. What do you want? Be clear with expectations. Be affectionate. Take initiative. Pray for him. He is the authorized agent to receive what you owe Jesus. 
unmarried friends. Paul says rejoice. You're not shackled down like the married people. Paul says, I wish you could all be like me. He says that. Like you're like, oh, I wish I was married. It might come, it might not, but enjoy it while it hits. You know what I'm saying? Because Paul says, I can do more for Jesus than you can married people. Because when you get married, you have made a vow to care for that person, to invest in that person. Loving Jesus, serving Jesus, now becomes mutual submission in your home. But if you're single, man, you can do a lot for the Lord. You can travel at the drop of a dime. You can advance your career. You can do a lot for the Lord. Hey, I love being married, but I'm just saying. Rejoice. If, if we were writing household codes today, we'd cast the one about slavery out, and we would add something. I, I, you know, singleness, like, it wasn't a thing in the first century for very long. Like I said, people got arranged. They got married really early. But what would it look like then to mutually submit to a Christian roommate? Your roommate is the appointed agent authorized to receive what you owe the master. Your co-worker is the authorized agent Appointed to receive what you owe the master. Your extended family are the appointed agents authorized to receive what you owe the master. I could go on. You get the point. Our neighbors are the authorized agents appointed to receive what we owe the master. Different Christian groups have looked at this text in Ephesians and have created whole doctrines about husbands and wives and how they relate to one another. There are two major views. Uh, One is the complementarian view. That is, men and women were created equal by God. They still are equal in God's eyes. Um, But God created them differently in how they relate to one another. Men are viewed as the head of the house, as in charge. Women are to submit. And this is kind of, you read Ephesians from the complementarian view, and you read it prescriptively. This is how the Word of God lays it out. Men are to be the head, women are to submit. That's complementarian view. I know people in complementarian marriages, there are some in this church. There is lots of biblical support for a complementarian view. I present that to you on one side. On the other side is an egalitarian approach. Men and women created equal, just like the complementarian view. Um, And in the new creation that the gospel brings about, there is a mutual submission and less rigid roles in marriage. So it's a descriptive view. It takes a look at Ephesians 5 and 6 and says, well, in the passage about slaves, we don't think that's prescriptive. We don't think we ought to have slaves and masters anymore. Right? So uh, the egalitarian view says the trajectory of the gospel is a flattening out of hierarchy, a mutual submission... I think all of us would agree abolition of slavery is a pretty good thing. Um, And anyway, we'll get to parenting next week. So the egalitarian view is more of a flattening of the marriage roles. So I present those to you, and here's what I ask. And you know how I am with these gray issues. They're both supported by Scripture strongly. And I ask you to search the Scriptures yourself. I'm talking about the Old Testament and the New. There's a whole narrative there. It all ties together. And I ask you to come up with your own decision. And for folks who are, who are forming relationships, I beg you to look at the Scriptures. And when you're looking for a mate, whether you're complementarian or egalitarian, just make sure that you agree. Scripturally agree. It will save you so much grief down the road. Um, It'll make marriage counseling a lot more fun for me.
There's an underlying analogy that, frankly, I just I could have preached three weeks on this one passage, um, and I didn't get to very much. Uh, but the underlying analogy of this whole passage is how Christ relates to the church. In verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, and it says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So let me just close with this bit of gospel, a bit of good news. Before we were ever called to submit to one another, there was a man who left his triune family and was joined in the flesh to the ones he loved. This man laid his life down for his bride, the church. This man rose from the dead, defeating our enemy death. This man continues to love and provide for his bride. This man is Jesus. This man is our king. This man is more than a man. And this man bids us come and follow. Would you pray with me? I still agree with Paul, Lord Jesus, that this is a great mystery. (laughs) And I ask, Lord, for wisdom and tenacity to continue to live in this text, to continue to submit ourselves to your word. I pray against the trap of dogma of reading our history, our past, or our favorite theologians into these verses. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the the blessing of a good conscience as we wrestle with the scriptures and, and are in prayer and are in community discussing these things. I am thankful, Lord Jesus, for the invitation at all to submit to one another. I'm thankful because it actually sounds good, and I know it wouldn't sound good if you hadn't done something amazing first, if you hadn't submitted yourself and gone to the cross, have given up your rights for us. Lord, I pray for a deep devotion in each one of us to love you and to see our neighbors, men, women, boys, girls, as the agents authorized to receive the love we owe you. Amen.